It was so beautiful that war and bloodshed seemed impossibly far away. Coconut palms waved politely at us, cows drowsed in the green meadows, and swimmers were splashing in a little creek. When we neared Henderson Field, however, things looked different. We could see hundreds of pockmarks left by bombs and shells. Besides the craters, there were foxholes and slit trenches, and many wrecked planes ranged across the field, which itself was a mere cow pasture hacked out of the jungle. Rough-looking fellows with beards came running out of the woods to meet us. They cheered almost hysterically, climbed onto the wildcats, and seemed almost ready to kiss us. Major John L. Smith, the famous Marine ace from Lexington, Oklahoma, drove out in a jeep to say hello. Then he took us down a peg or two by pointing out that we had landed on the bomber strip. We had to take off again and land on the fighter strip, three quarters of a mile away. There, at one of the ready tents, we met Captain Marion Carl of Hubbard, Oregon, who was runner-up to Smitty and number of planes shot down. Veteran pilots showed us our camp, a few tents in the grove opposite the jungle. As green newcomers usually do, we secretly felt we were pretty good, but lost that cocky feeling completely after talking for 15 minutes with the boys who had been through the mill. What dampened us most was the replies we got to questions about old friends. Several of them were dead or missing. We were warned to expect shelling from the sea during the night. The warning was no joke, and neither was a shelling. Old-timers called it light, but the noise, intensified by the answer of our artillery, kept us awake nearly all night. Nothing fell close to us, however. It's October 9, 1942. Captain Joe Foss and VMF-121 have arrived on Guadalcanal to relieve VMF-223. Welcome to Guadalcanal, VMF-121, and welcome to the Aviation Medals of Honor podcast. Joe Foss probably shouldn't even be on Guadalcanal. At 26 years of age when he was winged as a naval aviator, he was considered too old to be a fighter pilot and instead assigned to a photo reconnaissance squadron. But Joe was determined to fly fighters. He's already overcome many obstacles to get where he is and he's not going to let his age stop him. Born April 17, 1915 in a South Dakota farmhouse, Joe was used to hard work and as a country boy was familiar with a rifle. As I talked about in the last episode with Mary and Carl, growing up hunting was a common theme among many who became the top aces. Joe even talks about it in his 1943 book, Joe Foss, Flying Marine, when he says, quote, I mention these things because marksmanship is important in war, and good shooting isn't learned overnight. Nearly all our successful pilots have been boys who loved hunting as far back as they could remember. Unquote. Joe's father is killed in an accident when he is 17. As the eldest son, he takes over the family farm. He attends college off and on while running the farm over the next several years, finally graduating in 1939. He had managed to get about 100 hours of flying time in between his education, the farm, and multiple other jobs. Different times and a different work ethic for sure. 
Joe is accepted into the Marine Corps as an aviation cadet. He gets his wings and a commission as a second lieutenant in March of 1941 and is assigned to remain at Pensacola as an instructor pilot. In early 1942, he's off to San Diego to join a photo reconnaissance squadron, and he isn't too happy about it. He recalled in his book, quote, I wanted to fight, and reconnaissance planes have no guns on them. When I kept yelling, a major said, You're too damn ancient, Foss. Don't you realize you're 27 years old? Unquote. Now, fighter pilots that age weren't entirely unheard of. It's just guys that age were usually the squadron or group commander, called names such as the Old Man, Gramps, or Pappy by the average squadron pilot in his early 20s. Foss continues, quote, But finally they sent me to an aircraft carrier training group where I got in 100 hours and left with a good recommendation. I went back to the reconnaissance squadron. One day the colonel called up and asked, How'd you like to get in a fighter squadron? I'll be right up, I said. On August 1st, I went in as executive officer of VMF-121 at Camp Kearney, California. Things moved fast after that. On the 9th, I was married in La Jolla, California to June Shacksad of Sioux Falls. We had known each other ever since high school days. On the 11th, I was promoted to captain, and by the 30th, we were on our way to the South Pacific somewhere. Unquote. That somewhere in the South Pacific was Guadalcanal. When VMF-121 arrives at Henderson Field on October 9, 1942 to relieve Major John L. Smith's worn-out VMF-223, they are facing much the same situation as VMF-223 did back in August. The Japanese continue to hold a numerical advantage over the Cactus Air Force in the Solomons, with about 115 combat aircraft to 75. The fighter portion of that is about 78 zeros to 45 Wildcats. Experience-wise, 121 looked to be better prepared than 223 had been to enter the fight. The squadron had been stood up in June of 1941 and was one of the first Marine squadrons to receive the F-4F Wildcat. Unlike 223, who had just received their Wildcats a month prior to sailing for Guadalcanal, 121 had trained extensively on it. The problem was that there was an almost constant rotation of personnel out of the squadron to form up new squadrons as the Corps rapidly expanded in early 1942. So like 223, they are mostly staffed with relatively inexperienced second lieutenants. Captain Foss is considered an old hand, despite having only two years in the Marine Corps and about 150 hours in the Wildcat. He is the number two guy in the squadron, the executive officer to squadron commanding officer Major Leonard Duke Davis. Compare that to an executive officer of a modern-day squadron, who likely has well over a decade in the Corps, probably on his third squadron tour, with about 1,500 hours or more of flying time. So like 223 and 224 before them, 121 was a relatively inexperienced group who were outnumbered by their Japanese counterparts. However, the tactics in the Wildcat have proven to be a match for the vaunted Zero and 121 is eager for action. They're going to get it. The period of 27 September to 26 October will see the heaviest air action of the campaign, as the Japanese launch a determined effort to take back Guadalcanal. After their midsummer offensive was stopped at Edson's Ridge, the Japanese High Command commits to another attempt to retake Guadalcanal, setting a target date of 20 October 1942. 
This time they are committing two divisions, the 2nd and 38th Infantry Divisions, a total of 17,500 troops. They have finally figured out their Marine presence on the island is much larger than initially thought. The Japanese Navy, under Admiral Yamamoto of Pearl Harbor fame, promises to support this attack by delivering the Army troops to the island. To do so, they will need to increase pressure on Henderson Field via increased air attacks and naval bombardment. So in late September, air attacks renew with increased ferocity, and Yamamoto will have some other nasty surprises in store for the Marines at Henderson Field and Fighter 1, the new grass airstrip hacked out of the jungle alongside the main runway at Henderson. It was into this period of increased action that Joe Foss and VMF-121 arrive on Guadalcanal. It's going to be an eventful couple of weeks for them. Joe and 121 are immediately pressed into the fight, flying an uneventful escort mission up the slot on 10 October, then intercepting an inbound raid of 51 Zeros and bombers the next day. 121 draws their first blood, splashing two bombers into Zero while suffering their first Wildcat lost, although the pilot was recovered. Late in the afternoon the same day, SBDs, the Douglas Dauntless Scout Dive Bomber, out on a reconnaissance patrol pick up a force of what they identified as two cruisers and six destroyers steaming south. It's actually a group of six destroyers and two seaplane tenders on a large Tokyo Express run to bring reinforcements to Guadalcanal. Also closing on Guadalcanal but undetected is a screening force of three cruisers and two destroyers. Their mission is to bombard Henderson Field while the replacements land. Coincidentally, the U.S. Navy has its own force of four cruisers and five destroyers in the area, providing cover for transport ships also bringing in reinforcements, the U.S. Army's 164th Infantry Regiment. Given a warning from the Cactus Flyers, the Navy surface force moves to intercept. The two forces again meet in the vicinity of Savo Island around midnight on 11 October. The U.S. Navy has the advantage. They have the prior warning from Cactus and are tracking the Japanese force on radar. The Japanese have no such warning. They are not expecting any opposition, as the Allied naval presence at night has been non-existent since their devastating loss at the Battle of Savo Island back in August. Additionally, the Japanese ships are not radar equipped. They are relying on lookouts only, on a dark, no-moon night, with rain squalls in the area. The Japanese only become aware of the American presence when shells start crashing into them. Confusion reigns on both sides as ships pass each other in the night. In the end, the Japanese have been turned back, losing a heavy cruiser and a destroyer in the process, along with another cruiser damaged. The Americans have lost their destroyer and have another destroyer and cruiser heavily damaged. The next day, Cactus SBD dive bombers and TBF Avenger torpedo bombers catch several destroyers that have lagged behind due to damage or rescue efforts. They will send two of them to the bottom. It's a victory for the Americans and a confidence booster for the U.S. Navy surface forces, but strategically doesn't mean much, as in the confusion, the Japanese transport convoy has unloaded its troops and supplies and slipped back to the north. The U.S. Army's 164th Regiment lands a couple of days later, on the 13th of October, a day which we long remember by Henderson Field's occupants. That day starts badly for Cactus. A late warning has the Wildcats still climbing for altitude as a morning raid of 27 Betty bombers dump their loads on Henderson Field. 
It's an unusually accurate attack, which craters the steel mounting of the runway in 13 places, while destroying one aircraft and damaging 12 others. But more critical was that 5,000 gallons of desperately needed aviation fuel wound up in smoke. Wildcats from VMF-121 flying from Fighter 1, the grass strip hacked out of the jungle adjacent to the main field at Henderson, managed to catch the retreating force and shoot down a Betty and a Zero for the loss of one Wildcat. But the damage is done, and the day is far from over. A warning of a second raid inbound comes in as many of the Marine fighters are still refueling from the first fight. 121 manages to put up 10 Wildcats, including Captain Foss, to oppose the 15 Bettys and 10 Zeros of the Japanese force. Joe Foss will get his first kill on this mission, but his first kill was almost his last. As he tells it, quote, Two hours later came another attack, by 18 bombers this time. As my flight climbed in position, I felt excited and good, like a kid waiting for a big dish of ice cream. We climbed to the left of the big fellows before seeing five or six zeros off to the right. I led my boys along the edge of some clouds, hoping the zeros wouldn't see us. In my excitement, I guess I forgot to turn the radio on, or maybe it wasn't working. Anyway, one of my boys flew alongside, waved urgently, looked up, and pointed. Thinking he was pointing at the zeros we'd already seen, I smiled and waved back. The first thing I knew, my wingmen were gone. Unquote. Now for those of you that listened to the Thunderbolt episode, where Robert Johnson of the 56th Fighter Group sticks with his flight lead despite incoming German fighters until he's shot out of formation, I guess you could say the Marine wingmen were either less disciplined than the Air Force flyers, or another take would be that they were smarter. They're not sticking with an unaware flight lead just to get shot down. Back to Joe's account of the fight. Quote, Attacked from above by a swarm of other zeros, they had dived out of formation, and a zero which had been hiding on top of the clouds was on my tail, sending a sizzling stream of tracers a few inches from my head. The speed of his dive took him past, and he pulled up directly in front of me. I pulled up after him, got him squarely in the sights, and gave him a light burst. With a great flash, he blew into a thousand pieces. It was my first zero. I was conscious of a lot of things. My hair standing up, a dryness of the mouth, and a crazy desire to stand up in the cockpit and yell. That's the way you feel when a zero blows up right in front of you. But there was other business waiting. Pulling up to get this zero had made me a setup for three others, which now came in viciously, their guns blazing. As I pushed over into a dive, I saw oil fly from my oil cooler and a hunk of wing ripped out by a cannon shell. As I dove, the motor burned out in a flash and the piston stuck. The propeller, however, kept windmilling. Those zeros chased me right to the edge of the field, and I didn't dare slow up for an approach. I came in like a rocket ship, side-slipping desperately at the last moment. The landing was so hot an ambulance was called out to pick up the pieces, if any. But, by some miracle, I managed to stop before running into the river with the stump patches at the edge of the field. I hooked a ride back on the side of the ambulance. The old timers laughed when I told them what happened. Bet that makes a Christian out of you. You won't pull that stunt again, they chuckled. I didn't argue. I was a sad sack that night. True, I had my first zero, 
but it made a boob out of myself getting him. The rest of the boys all came back, nicked and sore. They had been sprayed good, too. Our score was three bombers and four zeros for the day. More important, we had all learned some good lessons. I learned mine so well, the boys were soon calling me Swivelneck Joe. The lesson was, never get so intent on pressing home your attack that you fail to look around. Unquote. He barely escaped his first tangle of zeros with his life. But being on the ground the night of October 13th isn't going to be any safer. For the first time, heavy Japanese artillery, brought to the island a few days prior, opens up on the airfield around 5.30 p.m., sending the Marines scrambling for cover. But that's just a preview of what's to come. The Japanese have decided to risk a convoy of slow-moving transports down the slot, departing from the usual tactic of destroyer runs via the Tokyo Express. Six transports are en route, with 4,500 troops and supplies. Henderson Field needs to be shut down, or the transports will be in trouble. To do this, Admiral Yamamoto sends the battleships Congo and Haruna, along with several other smaller ships, to bombard Henderson. Around 1.30 a.m., early in the morning of October 14th, a Japanese aircraft drops flares over Henderson. A red flare on the west end, white in the middle, and green on the east end. It's the signal the battleship group has been waiting for and the big 14-inch guns open up. Over the next hour and a half, 793 14-inch shells hit the Henderson area. Captain Foss gave his version of the night's events in his book. Quote, The worst of the shelling was in the two hours between 1 and 3 o'clock. Jap cruisers and destroyers were parading up and down the channel, throwing everything they had at us. Farther out to sea, an enemy battleship was working us over with 14-inch shells. Overhead, circling enemy planes dosed us with large bombs and small anti-personnel bombs. At the height of the bombardment, the express train roar of the bursting salvos was so loud that it overloaded the capacity of the human ear. Those two hours were simply indescribable. Nothing like them can be imagined. Things quieted down after 3 o'clock, but the Japs made sleep impossible by nooses bombing rains which continued until daylight. A series of air alerts began before breakfast. We walked around groggily, picking up the pieces and viewing damage. Unquote. The damage was significant. Amazingly, only 41 had been killed, but the newly arrived VMSB-141 dive bomber squadron was hit particularly hard, losing their commanding officer and four other pilots. Out of 39 SBD dive bombers, only four are operational. None of the eight Avenger torpedo bombers are flyable. The main runway of Henderson was a mess of holes and twisted Marston steel matting. The Cactus Air Force's anti-shipping capability has been severely restricted. Luckily, Fighter One, that grass strip just to the south of Henderson, off which the Wildcats flew, was not hit as hard. 24 of the 42 Wildcats are operational, and the strip is usable. But between the bombing raid of the day prior and the shelling, much of their aviation gas has gone up in flames. Fuel is critically low, to the point where Marines resort to draining fuel from damaged and destroyed aircraft. It's a grim situation overall. 
as a staff officer briefed the pilots of the Army Air Force's P-39 Flying 67th Fighter Squadron, quote, I want you to pass the word along that the situation is desperate. We don't know whether we'll be able to hold the field or not. There's a Japanese task force of destroyers, cruisers, and troop transports heading this way. We have enough gasoline left for one mission against them. Load your airplanes with bombs and go out with the dive bombers and hit them. After the gas is gone, we'll have to let the ground troops take over. Then your officers and men will attach themselves to some infantry outfit. Good luck and goodbye. Unquote. In one night, the Japanese battleships have managed to do what two months of airstrikes by Betty bombers have failed to do. Shut down, or at least suppress, the Cactus Air Force. A single SBD that got airborne early on the 14th reports the transport group of six cargo ships and eight destroyers bearing down on Guadalcanal. Ominously, a separate force of battleships and cruisers is sighted inbound as well. The air raids continue. Wildcats managed to get airborne, but failed to intercept a morning raid of 26 Bettys and 18 Zeros. However, little additional damage is done. Joe Foss is airborne on the second scramble of the day, along with a mixed force of 11 other Wildcats from BMF-121, 224, and the Navy's VF-5. He's having engine issues, though, and is hiding in and out of the clouds over Guadalcanal, waiting for the bombers to clear so he could land his ailing Wildcat, when suddenly another Wildcat with a zero on his tail come racing by. The Wildcat escapes into a cloud, and the zero unknowingly turns right in front of Joe. It blows its wing off for an easy kill his second. Later in the day, Cactus manages to get a few SPDs launched against the closing Japanese transport convoy in two separate attacks, but fail to damage it. It's another long night for the Marines, as Henderson Field is again hit overnight, this time by two cruisers who send 752 8-inch shells into the field. As dawn breaks on the morning of October 15th, the Marines can see Japanese transports unloading troops and equipment just 10 miles northwest of the Marine positions. Initially, there's not much the Marines can do about it. Only three SPDs are operational, and two of those are damaged when they hit craters in the airfield trying to take off. Marine maintainers work furiously to fix airplanes, which are sent one by one into the fight as they are repaired. The Wildcats get into the mix as well strafing unloaded troops in between intercepting Japanese air raids. Captain Foss is almost lost intercepting one of those raids when he blacks out, a victim of a loose oxygen mask. While today's pilots are taught to recognize signs of hypoxia and train from time to time in an altitude chamber, back in the 40s, fighting an altitude on oxygen was a new thing to both aircraft designers and pilots. Lack of training and poor equipment design would cost many a pilot their life during the course of the war. Fortunately for Joe, he comes to below a thousand feet and pulls out just in time. With the individual attacks accomplishing nothing but further losses of SPDs, General Geiger, the Marine commander of the Cactus Air Force, halts any strikes until they get attack in strength. By mid-morning, a dozen SPDs take off to attack the unloading transports. They are accompanied by a single PBY Catalina carrying two torpedoes. The Catalina is General Geiger's personal aircraft, flown by his aide, Major Jack Cram. 
while Black Cat PBIs would later become famous for their deadly night attacks on Japanese shipping. A daytime torpedo run with a lumbering Catalina was thought to be suicidal. Times are desperate, though, and Major Cram is willing to give it a go, despite having no experience dropping torpedoes. He's given a quick brief on how to do it. Not by an actual torpedo pilot, but by a fellow pilot whose brother-in-law flew torpedo bombers. The can-do attitude in the face of impossible odds of the World War II generation never ceases to amaze me. Despite the odds, Major Cram likely achieves a hit. In any case, between the SPDs and his torpedo attack, they leave one transport burning. Despite being shot up by Zeros that chase him all the way back to Henderson, Major Cram and his crew survive. He'll be awarded the Navy Cross for his brave attack. Later in the day, B-17s, one of the few times they were effective against shipping, hit and sink another transport, while another SBD attack destroys a third. Despite the loss of half their transports, the Japanese have managed to get much of their troops and equipment ashore. Overall, about 15,000 troops have been landed since the beginning of October. Added to those previously on the island, the Japanese have about 20,000 troops available for their planned October offensive. The Japanese estimate that they are up against 10,000 Allied defenders. Well, that was correct back in August, but the U.S. had reinforced as well and now has about 23,000 troops on the island. Everyone knows a showdown is coming. Admiral Gormley, the officer in overall charge of the Guadalcanal operation, radios his boss, Admiral Nimitz, on the 16th of October. Quote, This appears to be an all-out enemy effort against Guadalcanal. My force is totally inadequate to meet situation. Urgently request all aviation reinforcements possible. Unquote. There is definitely concern that the island may fall. General Vandegriff, in charge of the Marine forces on the island, says he can hold, but he needs more support. The problem is, in October 1942, there isn't a whole lot more support to give. If Vandegriff could just hold on for a few more weeks, the Allies will begin to reap the benefits of American industrial power now on a wartime footing. In the meantime, Henderson Field and the Cactus Air Force remain under heavy pressure. After the shelling and air combat of the last three days, on the morning of October 16th, Cactus was down to 34 aircraft, only nine of which were Wildcats. Relief is inbound, though, in the form of Lieutenant Colonel Joe Bauer and his squadron, VMF-212. VMF-212 was mentioned back in John Smith's episode. They were the first Marine fighter squadron sent to the South Pacific and had been operating off of Faday Islands in the New Hebrides protecting the vital supply lines between Australia and the United States. They had also been ferrying replacement aircraft up to Guadalcanal since September. Many of 212's pilots had flown combat missions with Cactus, including Joe Bauer, who was already an ace, having achieved five kills by flying combat missions with VMF-223 and 224. But now VMF-212 finally commits as a squadron. Lieutenant Colonel Bauer has a reputation as one of, if not the, top fighter pilot in the Corps. Triple Ace and subject of the previous podcast, Mary and Carl, would say the following about a mock dogfight with Bauer when they were both assigned to VMF-221. Quote, I was strapped in tight because I knew I was about to lock horns with the finest fighter pilot in the Marine Corps. 
We went at one another, man-to-man, in a free-for-all that would establish their squadron's new pecking order. I don't remember individual maneuvers from that fight, but I distinctly recall making a half-snap roll to recover from an inverted spin below the crest of a ridgeline, with neither of us having gained an advantage. From then on, we guarded one another with mutual respect. I came to admire Joe Bowers, perhaps the finest pilot and officer I ever knew. Unquote. Bowers sometimes called Indian Joe because of his Native American heritage, but known to most simply as Coach. Bowers not just a good pilot, he was a top-notch instructor as well, and many of the Marine Corps' top pilots would credit Coach with their success. He had already inspired a generation of Marine fighter pilots to be better pilots and leaders by the time he brings 212 to Guadalcanal. Over the next several weeks, he'll become a Marine Corps legend. But back to October 16th. Bauer leads a flight of 19 VMF-212 Wildcats and 7 SBDs to Guadalcanal. It's a long overwater flight to Guadalcanal, and the Wildcats are on fumes by the time they get there. As the planes land, Bauer spots 9 VAL Japanese dive bombers attacking the destroyer USS McFarland in the vicinity of Lunga Point. The McFarland had helped relieve the fuel crisis by delivering 40,000 gallons of aviation fuel early in the day was taken on wounded for evacuation at the time of the attack. Despite his low fuel state, Bauer goes after them alone and splashes four in seconds. There are no doubts about victory claims this time. The whole fight is within view of Henderson. It's one hell of a first day for Colonel Bauer. With the arrival of VMF-212, VMF-224 is relieved. Bob Gaylor's command shot down a total of 16 and a half Japanese during their stint on Guadalcanal. Major Gaylor will return to the U.S. to receive the Medal of Honor. VF-5 and VMSB-232 depart as well. 223's commander, Lieutenant Colonel Magrum, is the only one of the original 15 pilots that arrived back in August to walk off the island. All others have been killed or evacuated with wounds or sickness. With the departures on the 16th, the only original cactus unit left is the Army Air Force's P-39 equipped 67th Fighter Squadron. In the air, the Japanese 11th Air Fleet and Japanese carrier air are kept at the pressure on Cactus Air Force with at least one raid a day. The action is intense and Captain Foss will rack up nine kills over a six-day period from 18th to 25th of October, including four on October 23rd. He barely makes it back to the field out of that fight. It's another dead stick landing for him, his second since being on Guadalcanal. As the battles rage overhead, the Japanese army struggles through the jungle to their attack positions. They've split their forces, planning a diversionary attack from the west while the main force strikes from the south. They have underestimated the ruggedness of the Guadalcanal jungles, though, and the attack is delayed from the 22nd to the 23rd of October. Still unable to reach their attack positions, the main attack is delayed again to the 24th, but the word isn't passed in time to stop the diversionary attack from the west happening on the 23rd. This attack of two Japanese battalions and a tank company suffers heavy casualties and is easily repulsed by the defending marines. The next night, the night of the 24th, the main force attacks the marine positions of Lieutenant Colonel Chesty Puller's 1st Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment. In the pitch darkened rain, the Japanese attacks are not well coordinated, and while the fighting is intense, the Japanese forces are forced to pull back as dawn approaches on the 25th. 
The Marines use the day to shore up their defenses, and when the Japanese attack again the night of the 25th, they are again repulsed. By the morning of the 26th, the Japanese retreat, having lost about 1,500 men. The U.S. defenders, which included the veteran Marines and the newly arrived 164th U.S. Army Infantry Regiment, lose only 60. The jungle has defeated the Japanese as much as the combined Army-Marine effort has. The men were weak from trekking through the jungle. Many had been without food for several days. Despite a 9-to-1 numerical advantage at the point of attack, they were never able to coordinate their forces for a decisive effort. As the Japanese army pulls back the morning of 26 October, the Japanese and Americans are searching for each other at sea. Admiral Yamamoto has moved his naval forces towards Guadalcanal with the dual purpose of supporting the ground offensive and engaging the American Navy. The American commander, Admiral Bull Halsey, is looking for a fight as well. Halsey has just taken over as commander of the Guadalcanal campaign from Admiral Gormley, who was relieved by theater commander Nimitz. Gormley was competent, but cautious and uninspiring. Nimitz needed someone who could bring renewed vigor to the Guadalcanal campaign. Bull Halsey was that man, and he's coming out swinging. In the days leading up to the planned ground assault, Carrier from both sides had been an occasional participant in the fighting over Guadalcanal. For example, the Val dive bombers that Joe Bauer had engaged were from Japanese carriers. The Japanese fleet is in a dominating position, with four fleet carriers and one light carrier, versus the lone U.S. operational carrier interior, the USS Hornet. Superior intelligence through the efforts of the PBY Catalina Patrol aircraft and the threat posed by the Cactus Air Force were the only things keeping the U.S. Navy somewhat viable. But as the ground assault was delayed, the scales began to tip a bit. Fuel is becoming an issue for the Japanese if the fleet stays at sea longer than planned. Additionally, they lose one fleet carrier to a fire in the engine room, which forced it back to truck for repairs. Lastly, the USS Enterprise, hastily repaired following the damage it took at the Battle of Eastern Solomons back in late August, is able to join the Hornet on October 24th. So by the morning of October 26th, it was a Japanese force of three fleet carriers and one light carrier facing off against the two American carriers. U.S. patrol aircraft spot the main Japanese fleet on the 25th. The Americans launch strikes, but the range is too great, and with darkness coming, no contact is made. Early in the morning on the 26th, scouts from both sides spot each other. Just minutes separate the respective sightings, and the race is on to strike first as aircraft are launched. The opposing strike groups will actually pass within sight of each other on their way to attack. It's the first of several waves launched over the course of the next several hours. By the end of the day, the Hornet will be sunk, while the Enterprise is again damaged. In return, U.S. aircraft have managed to heavily damage one fleet carrier and one light carrier. With the Hornet abandoned and sinking, the U.S. task force prudently retires to the west. The Japanese have control of the seas, and the damaged Enterprise is the only U.S. carrier remaining in the Pacific. It's a victory for the Japanese, but their air crew losses are heavy, heavier than any of the carrier engagements to date, including Midway. Their carriers may still be floating, but they lack the air power to exploit their victory, and with Henderson Field still in Marine hands, they don't have freedom to operate around Guadalcanal. The Japanese carriers retire to the north. Due to damage and aircrew losses, 
the Japanese are also effectively down to one operational carrier. So as October ends, the Japanese have been decisively defeated on land and have failed to break the stalemate at sea. For the Allied flyers of the Cactus Air Force, the period of 27 September to 26 October will prove to be the most intense period of air combat in the Guadalcanal campaign. During this period, Cactus flyers will claim 228 kills against total losses of 103, only 48 of those which will be in combat. Actual Japanese losses are 131 from all causes. Unlike the Americans, most of the Japanese air crew were lost. As were their carrier forces, the 11th Air Fleet has lost many veteran air crew, and replacements, when available, aren't up to par. The Japanese have lost their last best chance to take Guadalcanal, but they aren't ready to give up yet. The conclusion of the fight for Guadalcanal and the story of Joe Foss will continue in the next episode. Summer 5